welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. Today I'm speaking with Rebecca Lowe. In 2015, she set out on a year-long cycling trip from London to Tehran, passing through the Balkans, the Levant, and North Africa, crossing over to the Arabian Peninsula and ending in Iran. The Syrian civil war was raging and Western newspapers were filled with stories of conflict and crisis, the sort of images that have come to dominate our impressions of the region that we call the Middle East. We're obsessed by fanaticism and gloomy theocracies, but it doesn't paint an accurate picture of these incredibly rich and hospitable cultures, or of the everyday lives of the people who live there. I think this entire region is also misunderstood by those who've never traveled there as some sort of homogenous monoculture dominated by the Islamic religion and the Arabic language, as if those didn't each contain many expressions and shades. Rebecca's journey reveals a splintered mosaic of cultures, countries, and languages, each with their own unique histories and rich literary and artistic traditions. It's a fascinating part of the world to travel through and to read about. We talked about slow travel, the hangover of the Arab Spring, the promise of Sudan, and the stark cultural divides within cosmopolitan Iran. I think you'll find that last part especially interesting. Her book is called The Slow Road to Tehran, and it's in bookshops now. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Rebecca Lowe, welcome to Personal Landscapes. Hello. So the book seems to be doing really well. I'm seeing you absolutely everywhere these days. Was the response what you expected given the success of your blog? Not really, actually. I think I tried not to have any expectations at all because I always think they're they're quite dangerous. Uh, so I really, in, in a sense, I, I I didn't really think about it at all. I think, uh, and it, I didn't really think about the fact that people are going to be reading my book until the launch. I think I just cut that out because it was such a horrifying thought in my mind that I just didn't like to... Um, consider it at all it was only at my launch when you know all my close friends and family had it in their hands and it suddenly dawned on me that suddenly this was out in the wild and people were going to have all sorts of uh, awkward opinions of their own about about the book <laughs> and yeah that, that is quite terrifying so in a sense yeah I just cut that out of my mind but yeah I I, I didn't really I think expect there to be the the response that there has been I am it's been really lovely actually and you know that people seem to have enjoyed it and found it accessible because that that was very important to me that that I would reach out not just to people who are interested in the Middle East but also you know people who didn't really know very much about it at all Um, so yeah that's all been quite gratifying. It sheds a different light on the Middle East as well. It provides a lot more nuance than what people are used to seeing. That has very broad appeal. I'd like to focus mostly on culture and place, especially some of the lesser known places that you travel through, but this is very much a journey book. So I guess we should start start there for people who don't know uh, about the slow road to Tehran. So why did you choose Tehran as your destination and why go by bicycle? <laughs> Two very good questions. Uh, I chose Tehran because... I had been fascinated by Iran uh, for, for some time. Um, I uh, had been working, before I went on the trip, I'd been working somewhere called the International Bar Association, which is a, a global legal organi- organization with a fairly tenacious human rights institute. And I was there, an in-house journalist, and I was 
writing a lot about human rights and the rule of law when I was there. Um, and the Arab Spring happened um, as, I, as I was uh, when I was working there. And, and I started to develop a very strong interest. I already had a strong interest in the Middle East beforehand, but I started writing more about it, learning more about it. And I started to, to really feel quite strongly about the, the lack of nuance in, in the media that we hear about the, the, the Middle East um, and the, the lack of kind of depth and, and, and clarity and really sort of misleading stories. Um, and I, I wanted to, so that's really why I wanted to go to the Middle East. And Iran in particular, I felt was very distorted through the, the British press, like the, the image that we have of Iran. Um, you know, we really tend to read about in the media about the politics of these places um, and often about the leadership of these places. Um, and uh, in Iran, this is particularly stark, um, you know, that we sometimes think that the, the leaders are somehow a kind of shorthand for the character or the culture of these countries, when in fact, there's often a very strong disconnect between them and, and, and the countries that they rule over. Um, and I felt that across the Middle East as a whole, but particularly in Iran, like the more I would kind of read about it, the more I learned about it. Um, I just felt that, um, you yeah, know, we got this very kind of skewed sense of that country. Um, and I also wanted to delve into the, the history of these countries as, as, as well, like the backgrounds, um, and look at the complicity of the West in like how they've come to be as they are today. Um, and Iran in particular, you know, uh, we have a very kind of a complex and unsavory history um, where Iran is concerned, really, and um, the, the chicanery the, uh, the, and the machinations that the British and, and the West have been up to in Iran. And so I really wanted to draw that out in my book. So, uh, yeah, I that's why I went through the Middle East. And really, that's why I wanted to end in Tehran in particular. And also Tehran has just amazing food and kebabs. And I'm obsessed about kebabs. <laughs> and I just heard wonderful things about it. So I thought it would be a, a great place to finish. And then why did I go by bike? Because the bike is just a wonderful way of seeing the world. It really is. The bike is about all the in-between places. You're not going in motorized transport. You're you're going from hotspot to hotspot, you know, and um, you're only getting a very kind of blurred sense of what's going on in between those places. Um, but for me, it's really, I feel like everyday life lurks in the cracks. It lurks in the parts in between. And uh, and for me, part of the journey was about just everyday life like I didn't want to write about the the, the big bombastic aspects of the Middle East because that is what we read about all the time in the media we read about uh, the crises and the, and the, we read about the the, the the conflict the difficulties I wanted to write about you know the the 99.9 percent .9 that we never hear about and uh, and the bike is wonderful for doing that and it's also a very gentle way of traveling and you know you are seen as unthreatening uh, you're quite a curiosity to people you know people tend to think that you need some kind of psychological help because why on earth you're on a bicycle so they tend to kind of flock to you <laughs> to talk to you to who is this mad person uh, they're kind of grateful to you because you've gone to all that physical effort to get to their community um, and so they really see you more as a kind of guest rather than a kind of tourist or someone who's come to observe them you're very much kind of on the same level um, 
and uh, and I just love that about the bike and and also you're you're propelling yourself on you know with your with your own strength and there's something kind of very satisfying and quite beautiful about that and it meant as well like going back to, to to kebabs it meant that I could basically eat whatever I wanted every day and still end up with a firm ass at the end of it which I think was quite because I did consider doing it by by motorcycle actually at one point and uh, and I mean I failed my test twice which was a sign I think that probably I shouldn't have done that yeah yeah, yeah. You do get a sense of those kind of in-between places traveling on public transports, you know, along with um, people moving from place to place. But it's different going under your own steam, I guess, because the land sort of unrolls at its own pace before you. Mm-hmm. A lot like um, traveling on foot in that sense. Werder Herzog had said uh, the best way to understand the world was read, 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 and to travel on foot. Mm-hmm. You went very much in that spirit. The route you took was a really a major digression down through um, Africa over to the Arabian Peninsula and then up to Iran. Like, why not just go straight across Turkey? I think some people thought that it was just a mistake because I have no sense of direction. And I think <laughs> <laughs> you forgot to turn left when you got to Turkey, you idiot. Um, but actually, I, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, part of the point of the journey was to see as much of the Middle East as possible because, I mean, the, uh, the idea behind the book was to really kind of dig a little bit beneath the the media stories we hear uh, about the Middle East and um, you know with the Arab Spring happening I really wanted to get a better understanding you know what caused this why is this a kind of a region in in in, in crisis is there something kind of more to talk about here um, and so I wanted to go through as much of the Arab world as possible as much as much of the um, the Middle East as I could en route to Iran. So that meant going a fairly circuitous route in the end. Um, and it also, it was slightly disjointed. It, it was more just disjointed than, than I'd wanted at the beginning because originally I'd intended to go through Yemen or through Saudi Arabia to get to the UAE from Sudan. So I went down you know, to give listeners an idea of the routes that I went down through uh, Europe and the Balkans and then Turkey and then crossed over to Lebanon to Jordan to Egypt down the Nile to Sudan uh, and then I jumped got a flight from Sudan to UAE and then to Oman and sorry to, to Oman and then the UAE and then up to Iran um, and uh, you know but Yemen broke out in civil war um, and it was impossible to, to go through there and Saudi Arabia didn't give out any tourist visas and also didn't allow women to cycle in public on their own unless you went I think in, in circles in a kind of confined space <laughs> so in the end it just wasn't practical uh, so that was a slight frustration um, but uh, yeah that 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 was the reason really just to see as much of the region as I could. You talked about to the the origins of your fascination with the Middle East and Islamic culture and while Covering the Middle East, you pointed out that the the news is dominated by stories of violence and villains, simply because of the nature of the news. But it tends to magnify the dangers, and the worst events seem normal. Mm-hmm. I mean, countries never look like this on the ground, unless unless you're talking about war zones. Is that why you felt like a, a new sort of reporting was needed that focuses on you know away from politics and bloodshed to the everyday lives of people? Yeah, it, uh, absolutely right. Yeah, I do think that often people have a skewed sense of risk. I think, um, and it is. The, largely to do with, with with the media and it's not the media's fault because I think you know it's a classic if it bleeds it leads you know these, these are the sorts of stories that people actually want to to read about so you know people like to read about conflict they like to read about sort of sensational things you know um death destruction chaos uh, and so these are things that get reported on uh, but of course when that's all you ever hear about all the time and all you ever hear about in the Middle East 
are the the Islamist attacks and the, the villainous autocrats. You know, you sort of have this sense that, that this is what the whole of the region is about. You know, that these people are kind of flooded throughout the region and it's in this perpetual state um, of of chaos. But it's really not like that at all. Um, and yeah, so that's I wanted to get that sense across that that uh, this isn't the norm. These people are not the norm. Um, uh, terrorists are really kind of you know. A, a, tiny, tiny groups in very um, small confined areas. And that, you know, you can go through vast swathes of the Middle East without encountering anyone like that at all. And so I just wanted to bring out the the voices, yeah, of the everyday people of the, of the Middle East, you know, humanize them, understand them. Um, uh, yeah, and also talk to them, yeah, about their opinion of of, of the West as well. And, 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 you know, to try to get a bit of an understanding um, of how we were seen in, in their eyes. It's frustrating, I think, that, that people do have this kind of sense of danger because I think it stops them doing things that, um, you know, would actually be perfectly fine. Also, many of these countries are incredibly welcoming. Very incredibly welcoming. You'll be astonished at the welcome you, you get in these places, I think, if you've never traveled there. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, it's overwhelming. I, I, I mean, it's sometimes too overwhelming. That's true. I, that's, you know, and I actually think that I was more worried and stressed at the beginning of the trip like when I was going through France I think partly because I wasn't fit I wasn't confident at at, at that time um so I was really quite nervous quite anxious I was wild camping um there was nobody in France at all because it was uh, August and everyone had left and so I was kind of on my own Uh, my my French is fairly poor um so I was sort of in, in, in this country which should have been very much within my comfort zone and uh, you know, and but, but alone with my own thoughts, and um, you know, for having sort of this sense of existential crisis for much of the time. But then when I got to the Middle East, you know, by that point I was more, 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 more confident and comfortable with 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 what I was doing. But, but people there, you know, there's no time to um, navel gaze uh, and kind of worry and things like that because there's just there's people around all the time and, and they're they're talking to you they're chatting to you um they're they're looking after you they're taking you into their houses they're feeding you uh you know in Iran I didn't camp or staying in a hotel once all I had to do was turn up in a village no matter where it was um look a little bit kind of hungry and forlorn you know which wasn't hard because that's basically how I felt most of the time uh, and people would flood around me and, and invite me to them to their houses and um you know and and it was sometimes I felt like I wanted a bit of lone time because you know you can't really escape these people um but I think what was fascinating for me was that no matter where I went even if I was in quite a remote quite a traditional conservative area of a country um you know sometimes people were you know they asked me lots of questions about myself my religion my marital status things like this you know where are your children where's your husband uh, but they were never I never got the sense that they were really judging me I never got the sense there was no hostility um there was there was no um kind of anger or resentment towards me there they just were kind uh, and and warm and it was really the case across the board I mean there were really almost no instances I can think of um when somebody you know would invite me into their home and then kind of turn on me in 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 some way I've always found it interesting traveling in remote places to get these sorts of questions about your home life that you just never thought of previously you know like I what are the average salary of people in your country I mean Jesus I don't know I had the Mongolia some guy asked me that 
<laughs> and I tried to, I just made something up. I mean, I'm fresh out of school. I didn't have much of a job. And then he looked at me and said, what's that in meat? <laughs> like, what's the conversion? <laughs> Yeah, they, 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 the questions certainly are quite difficult. Yeah, they ask me very odd things. Um, yeah, what, what's the kind of the average price or what, what is the average um, electrician paid? I think was, you know, one, one yeah. question. Uh, what is, what, what's the, yeah, the average of a pair of shoes cost? Yeah, the, the, these sorts of things. It makes you look differently at the sort of questions travelers ask when you're going through a place, you know, trying, trying to figure a place out, because I'm sure we're asking the same sorts of questions. Uh, yes. But without realizing it, one of the things I really liked too about um, your book was, well, I'll read the quote here. You said uh, you wanted to present a view that depicted the region, not as a homogenous sphere of chaos and fanaticism, but as a sweeping splintered mosaic, often as different from itself as from those looking in from elsewhere. It's always struck me as strange that people view the Middle East as this sort of homogenous region when you, you look at the Christian West, for example, Western Europe, nobody thinks that that's just one flat zone of the same uh, cultural sameness everywhere. Do you think and maybe language has something to do with that? The fact that the entire region speaks variations on Arabic as a, as the main tongue? I think that's partly it. Although, of course, it, it doesn't really in a sense, though, because then you have Iran, which is seen, I, I think, in, in the Western consciousness is, is really seen as traditionally part of, of the Middle East. And of course, you know, they, they, you know, they'd be horrified if people thought that they spoke Arabic there. Um, that's the only thing that I think the Iranians can agree on, actually. <laughs> they have this bitterness towards the, the Arab people. But yes, and then you, you have Afghanistan as well, which is kind of lumped in with, with the Middle East and Pakistan, and they don't speak Arabic. I think it partly comes down to the the, the label, the, the the Middle East. I mean, this was a, a, a Western label that was applied to the region, you know, back um, 1900s, um, 1902, uh, by a, a, a British naval officer, and then it was picked up in in, in America. and uh, And it is an interesting label in a sense because it is through the Westernized gaze you know it's kind of the, the the kind of the middle of what east of of, of of what you know it doesn't really mean anything to the people who actually live there uh, and and it was picked up because originally uh, the the region was split into kind of near east and far east um and that was the near east was really to do with the Ottoman Empire. Um, and then when the Ottoman Empire collapsed you know it didn't seem to work anymore that term and so they they had this alternative term, the Middle East, which was to do with a region of, you know, strategic political interest because of the great game between Russia and the West. And so the Middle East was kind of this kind of sprawling, vague, murky area, which no one could really define. The, the, the boundaries of it have never been fixed. You know, the, the, the UN, the EU, America, the, the Britain, they all use actually kind of different official definitions of kind of what the Middle East actually is. Um, and I think it partly comes down again to the media. Um, you know, it's just a kind of convenient catch-all term for um Know, shenanigans that are going on over there, you know, in this kind of other place um, where these Muslims, these you know, Islamic people are uh, kind of fighting between themselves and, you know, having problems. And so it kind of gets kind of this idea of this kind of lumpen, homogenous area. Um, but yes, it is it, very, that these areas of it are very different from each other. Like Turkey is often, you know, seen as part of the, the, the Middle East, but of course they don't speak Arabic. Um, they are all um, Muslims, you know, in, in these areas, but also the Islamic world spreads vastly beyond 
the edges of the Middle East. There's, there's, there's more Muslims outside the Middle East than there are kind of inside. I find it fascinating that when you say the, the term the Middle East in the West, immediately you have a very, very fixed idea of what the Middle East is. Like it conjures up these images uh, in you know, violence of terror. Um, but actually, when you kind of dig down into it, it's um, it, it, the, the kind of the closer you get, the more pixelated and 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 fuzzy that, that image becomes. So that is something that I wanted it to explore. Another theme that comes up quite often too is the disconnect between the politics and the people. Like we, we seem to judge the entire region based on their politics or their leader. But anytime I've traveled in in these types of places or others, the people there don't judge me based on based on my government. Like I, I'm not cursed because we have we're cursed with Justin Trudeau. So why do you think we we equate the, these places with with their politics when when they're capable of seeing the difference? It's a very interesting question. Um, I'm not really sure, but I, I wonder whether it is partly to do with the fact that we come from a democracy and they are in usually in 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 dictatorships. And I think partly it is because we're in a democracy, we have uh, some degree of accountability for the people that we vote into government, whether we like to admit it or not. You know, we do have a degree of accountability for that. And there is more of a connection between the people and and the political leaders. And I think maybe because that's our experience. We then project that onto other countries and we tend to judge them in the same way. Whereas it's the reverse for the, for the other people. You know, they are from these, um, these autocracies where there's a very strong disconnect between the leaders and the, and the people. So in their minds, you know, you, you don't tend to judge people because they're, you know, you don't have that, that connection. So they perhaps they, you know, judge us by their standards and we judge them by our own standards and and in both cases perhaps get it a little bit wrong we should probably be held more to account and they should be held less to account um but i do think that we can learn something from from them um you know we we shouldn't judge people by the rules i mean certainly places like you know iran for example where I mean, it's very hard to get a sense of exactly how many people are against the regime in Iran. Um, everyone in Iran tends to, as we all do, function in their own kind of political and social bubbles. But, you know, I think it's anywhere between maybe 60 and 90 percent of the population are against the, the, the regime. So we really shouldn't judge them um, on the basis of these these nasty clerics who took over the country. Um you know, 40 years ago. And the people, you know, in, in, in Iran are actually, I think it's a surprise to some people that they're actually perhaps among the most kind of westernized and progressive people in the Middle East. And, um, you know, much more so than, say, somewhere like Egypt, which is actually a, a very conservative country, really. Um, uh, but we don't hear about those people so much because they're not the interesting story. Of course, the interesting story is about the you know, disastrous human rights record of of, of, of the regime um, and, uh, you know, the conflict uh, between Iran and the West and the nuclear deal and all these other other issues. I wonder if it's also because people don't read history deeply enough, because anybody who's read the history of Iran or the, the Persian Empire, you know, the, the great cultural tradition of Iran, the Shah Nema, mm -hmm. uh, some of these books would, would know how deep and rich the history is. Oh, absolutely. The 20th century is a blip on that. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that is another, another thing I wanted to draw out in the book was to look at this incredibly deep history in, in the Middle East um, and, uh, yeah, and, and, just, and go back, you know, to, to the Dark Ages, really. You know, you know when um, the East, the Middle East was awash with light and learning and the, the West was, you know, in, 
very much in, in, in the dark, kind of backward primitive. And, uh, and I think we sometimes forget that kind of, you know, history turns and that, you know, the, the West hasn't always been in um, the prominent situation it's in today. Um, we kind of look at the Middle East and I think sometimes people think that there's something kind of innately kind of violent about the, the region or about or perhaps about Islam. Um, but for me, when I literally, when I when I read the history of these countries, um, you know, my take on it is that actually the the, the conflict that we're seeing in, in the region has really come from a history of autocracy, of, of um, authoritarianism, which goes back to colonialism. And uh, and so we have a lot of complicity in that. And actually kind of um, religion is really a tool that is used by uh, authoritarian leaders in order to kind of control and manipulate their population. Your trip happened just quite soon after the wake of the Arab Spring. It was interesting to see the different responses of people to it, you know, a few years later. Like you spent a lot of time trapped in Cairo. What what sense did you get there? I mean, the, the sense from outside is that the Arab Spring kind of fizzled out, it collapsed. There was a brief flare up and that was all and it went back to the way it was. What sense did you get from the people there? I think Egypt was um, quite depressing in, in in some ways um in that you know we did have this wonderful flare-up of of hope and excitement of a new future for Egypt and then it was crushed mercilessly by this counter-revolution and by al-Sisi and there was a lot of despondency among the population I think who felt um you know I spoke to people there who felt they'd regressed sort of 60 years it was much worse than it was under Mubarak um and that now you know there really are um, you know, in the, the the clutches of this deeply um, totalitarian uh, military regime once again. Um, and so I think, yeah, Egypt in a sense, I didn't get this, I didn't get a kind of fe- overwhelming feeling of, of, of hope from the people there. But there was always, there is the kind of simmering energy, the simmering energy in, 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 in Egypt and in other places that I went as well. Like, you know, the, the revolution isn't over. You know, this was um, just, just perhaps the first kind of uh, wave of, of kind of protest. Um, but, you know, we've, we've seen revolutions in the past. You know, the French Revolution, you know, didn't, took a long time before that was actually successful. And we kind of look at it now, we tend to think that it kind of happened in a flash, but of course it didn't. Um, and I think that there has something, something has changed psychologically for these people, um, that they, that this barrier of kind of fear, in a sense, has broken um, and that they feel, you know, they managed to, to, to tumble a, topple a, a leader just from the force of, of people power. And I think that that was astonishing to, to a lot of the population, that they were able to do that. Um, and uh, Egypt has a, a legacy of kind of, of, of protest, of rebellion against sort of authoritarian leaders, against uh, the Brits, you know, among others. And, uh, and I kind of feel that they that they will get there eventually. Um, but it's also a very conservative country, a traditional country, and the education there is not fantastic. Um, and so I think it will take a long time. The military holds phenomenal power in Egypt. Um, it's thought that perhaps they control a third or more of the economy, no one really knows. You know, they control the judiciary, they control the press. Um, they, they really hold phenomenal power. So I think it will take a long time to unpick that. Um, yeah, so so I think mixed mixed feelings really, but I definitely don't think this is over. You had a, a lot more hopeful feelings for Sudan, the the next t- country down on your journey. You described it as a nation more splintered than any I've known, but where the human bonds of connection feel astonishingly strong. 
What did you mean by that? I meant that, you know, Sudan, God, it's a fascinating country. I mean, they have so many different um, kind of racial and ethnic and linguistic groups there. Um, and in a sense, you know, they're all kind of competing against each other. Um, and, uh, you know, there isn't, there's a lot of disunity, but at the same time, it is a very kind of a warm, open, passionate country. And again, we saw, like, so when I was there, there were definite rumblings of revolution. You know, I felt that we could feel like really that it was, it was um, very exciting to be in, in Khartoum. I was there for, for a few weeks and, and I wasn't sure if it was real or not at that time because they've been fighting against the, the government there for, for decades and, and not getting anywhere. So I wasn't sure whether you know, something really was was afoot or not. But then, you know, uh, a, a few years after I, I left, then they managed to, 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 to topple their despotic leader. And um, although also there's been a counter-revolution there as well. So in a sense, you know, they've got a, they've got a long way to go. But Sudan, their education is good. Their political will is strong. Uh, they are very splintered. Um, there are a lot of political groups that are kind of vying for, for, for power, but they've got a great legacy of democracy. Like they have had little pockets of democratic governments over the last few decades. Yeah. And so I kind of feel that perhaps more so than Egypt, that there is kind of a lot of hope in Sudan. Such an interesting country for the traveler as well. They've got so much to offer if things do stabilize enough to attract visitors, I mean, I think people have no idea what a what a fascinating place that is to visit between, you know, the pyramids, Nubian history in the north, and then the, the history of exploration in Khartoum. The West is very different. It's such a fascinating place. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I fell in love with, with Sudan. And uh, yes, there's this area called Nubia, which I didn't really know much about at all before I got there, which extends really from kind of Aswan in, in Egypt down to Khartoum in Sudan. And it is large region that was once the kingdom of Kush back in antiquity. Um, and it was a very sophisticated, very civilized, very powerful kingdom. And, um, you know, not many people know because it's actually been buried by history, by um, kind of racist historians, actually, um, that this kingdom of Kush um, rose up, I think, in 700 BC and actually managed to conquer the Egyptians in the north. This great Egyptian empire, uh, which many people saw as utterly infallible. And they they took it over for 100 years. Um, and there were five, you know, black pharaohs, um, in inverted commas, uh, as they're known, Nubian pharaohs that took over, which were among the most uh, successful and progressive pharaohs of, of all time. But because they were, you know, the skin was darker than, um, you know, the, the the kind of Arab North, they, um, you know, I guess the historians didn't really want to believe that it was possible that these people could have done this. Uh, and so you've got this whole history of, of Nubia and Kush as you're going down this region, um, these incredible pyramids that have kind of been left to go to rack and ruin because, you know, we've had you know, decades of, of uh, dictatorship and kind of no political will to look after them. But, you know, unlike in Egypt, where there's a real scrum to look at these these pyramids in Sudan, you can just kind of wander right up to them. And, you know, there, there's more pyramids in, in one place in Meroe in Sudan than there is in the whole of Egypt. And, and, you know, they're not as big and grand, you know, say the pyramid at Giza, but they uh, are still, the, the, the history behind them, the archaeology is just, it really is fascinating. Um, so I just think, yeah, if they could finally uh, have a, a, a government in power who cares about these things, who cares about the history, the archaeology, then um, it, it, I think a lot of people would, would 
be flocking out there to, to see these. So people should get out there now, I think, before, before it's too late, before actually the crowd. You could camp next to the pyramids of Meroe and be completely alone. But right next to them. Yeah, absolutely right yeah. next to them. Um, and I did that. And it, and it, it was wonderful. It's sort of startling somehow that, that you're able to do that. And it's depressing in some ways because, you know, you mm. look at these things and you want them to be better preserved and you kind of want them to take better care of them. Um, but there is this kind of frisson of, of excitement, of, of the fact that they're so open um, and that mm. you can just kind of wander freely up to them. Um, so... Yes, Sudan, kind of historically, culturally, politically, like everything about it, I think partly because it was so new to me. But yeah, I found it a deeply impressive country. There's an astonishing amount of prehistoric rock art as well. Deep in the Sahara from Sudan, I did a trip with um, a Hungarian guy who searches for this stuff to uh, Jebel Uenats on the border of um, Sudan, Egypt, and Libya. Isolated mountain in the middle of absolute nowhere, just teeming with prehistoric rock art. From when you know the Sahara was fertile, and the biggest thing that stood out for me from that trip, besides the rock art and the emptiness of the desert, was just how great the people were. Mm-hmm. We took five land cruisers to get out there, and I became quite friends with the drivers. And we went gold prospecting a couple of times. And these guys had never been out there either, so deep in the desert of their own country, because it's just not a place that's easy to access. And I remember I, I asked, you know, if, uh, would you come back? And you know, a couple of them said they would, and. One guy, huge guy with a voice like Tom Waits said, uh, I like my home. <laughs> I like my wife. <laughs> <laughs> they were trying to set me up with a, with a local wife as well. I, I'd already, I, I brought my wife on the trip, but <laughs> they were quite convinced I should have uh, a Sudanese wife and, and settle down there. <laughs> they were really great. So what was your experience of, of cycling through the desert? Uh, it was hot. Yeah, it, it, it was um, hotter than I had hoped, actually. I, I intended originally that the whole journey was going to be seven months long, and and that was deliberate because it meant that I would have um, managed to get through the, the regions like the Sahara and in Iran before the real kind of heat of spring and summer kicked in. But unfortunately, I was quite slow um, and stopped with too many kebabs on the way, and so I um, I ended up that the, the the trip got elongated to twelve months, and I just wanted to. Um, really stop in places longer to absorb them properly to speak to people so I just I did I just slowed the whole trip down but what that meant was that I hit the Sahara in the, the heat of of um of the spring and it, it was it took a bit of getting used to I mean the temperatures there were upwards of 40 like 40 45 degrees um and uh, so it just meant that I would cycle in the, the morning usually to about 11 o'clock in the morning and after that uh, I wouldn't be able to cycle again till about four or five in the afternoon and then I'd cycle for several hours after that and then have a very lengthy siesta in these kind of little huts that they'd have um, along, along the river which was lovely actually you know you could go into these places Places and people were very welcoming and you know you could have a they have these power generators and so you could often get like a cold drink and you could just curl up on the sand like in the corner of these little bamboo huts um so that was quite nice I mean there was it kind of amused me that that one guy warned me at one point that there was a heat wave coming and you know I've been cycling in plus plus 40 heat <laughs> it's the Sahara I mean it's just one giant heat wave he was like no no there's a and, and he was right there actually because then you know there was kind of this extra layer of heat that descended uh, and that got very hard and there was actually one incident when I was just an idiot really um, and I'd crossed to the other side of the Nile um, and I'd gone to see some ruins called Old Dongola um, and um 
and I visited them. And then some random guy in a car. I can't remember how I met him. I had this sort of quite sprawling network at that point. And and in Sudan, these things just seem to happen, like contacts of contacts would help you out. And so this guy somehow managed to pick me up and take me to a house somewhere where I stayed the night. Um, But I wasn't really sure where I was. And the next day, I didn't take very much water with me because where I'd been cycling previously, there were lots of water stops like huts where you could stop and get water and these also these big clay urns which would have local cold water in them um, and I just assumed there'd be places like that you know, regularly along, along the road and, and there weren't on this side of the Nile um, and so I got into trouble quite quickly it was like seriously hot um, and you know, quite a, a, a strong blustery fiery wind as well um, and I just I didn't take enough water and I couldn't find any water on the way. And I ended up um, kind of getting really exhausted and sort of sleeping at the side of the road and then almost unable to sort of get back on my bike and, and continue. Um, and I felt very shaky, very kind of sick, very um, almost sort of hallucinating. Um, and then got to this village kind of almost in the nick of time where uh, I kind of actually slipped off my bike on the, on a bridge and uh, then you know the hospitality kicked in and suddenly there's kind of you know dozens of people around you and they're tipping water down me and they're taking me off to, to a house to recuperate and like look after me and bringing kind of food and yogurt and water and uh, were, were incredibly kind and um and 24 hours later I was I was perfectly fine um, but that was definitely a that was a bit of a kick up the backside that I think I'd I'd almost become a bit complacent, I think, um, and hadn't, uh, I, I, I think I, I hadn't taken on board the true power of the desert. I forget who said it. The, the, one of the early travelers said the desert teaches by taking away. Yes. You really get that sense. You know, it's your existence there is very fragile you know, and it's can change very quickly. I've always felt like a bit of an interloper on a foreign planet traveling through desert regions. The astonishing variety of these places too is another thing that people seem to not expect. You just expect this flatness and and emptiness, but uh, the way the light changes, you know, mm-hmm. throughout the day. Who was it? Hassan and Bay, or one of the early Egyptian travelers, said that in the evening you'll forget you'll forgive everything the desert has done to you. Like the the daytime is just so punishing, the heat is awful, but then when that light changes in the evening and everything everything becomes so magical and it gets a little bit cooler and the landscape transforms. It's really amazing. That, that's a lovely way of putting it. Actually, it's absolutely true. The, the light in the evening—it was—it's very hard to describe. It's because sort of, I felt, you know, it kind of strengthens and softens all at the same time, and it has this kind of luminous quality to it. And sometimes you get these incredible kind of psychedelic streaks of kind of kind of pinks and oranges, and it's just so vibrant. And because you don't have, you know, electric lights around, you know, it has just this intensity to it. And the stars, I mean, my goodness, the stars in the desert. I mean, I I don't think I've ever seen anything so beautiful. Um, I would actually, I'd, so I would sleep in Sudan. I would um, always sleep outside on these kind of anger reaps, these string beds. Um, and uh, and I just for ages, I would just stare up at the sky, kind of cup my my hands around my eyes and just stare at that. And it's almost like you're floating in space because there are just, I mean, the whole 
area you know you could it's like um kind of fairy dust it's just impossible to, to, to describe really um but that was for me one of one of the most kind of wonderful parts of cycling desert was these these evenings and that just sky erupting with light just layer after layer you can see so deep into the heavens. absolutely it's like you're sort of traveling through space and time um yeah uh, and you're just sort of suspended there and it's all kind of wonderful sense of the kind of profundity of things as well suddenly everything seems you know kind of there's some kind of deep meaning and uh, but at the same time your incredible insignificance at the same time yes. it's these kind of competing feelings going on it's almost yes. hard to reconcile them together at the one you, want, you know you're part of something that's so immense and at the same time you kind of you personally are just this kind of tiny moat yeah that was one of my favorite stretches of the of the book as well i was a bit disappointed to read about oman you described Muscat, the capital, as having a sense of control and soulless apathy. <laughs> Something contrived about it, as if it's all a museum exhibit. Do you disagree with that? Too? No, I've never been there. I was oh, I, okay. I really love desert places. And I thought, oh, that this would be an interesting place for a journey. I've read, you know, Thesiger's accounts and um Ranulph Fine's time there with the SAS and some of these early travelers and the uh, frankincense trade and mm-hmm. these kind of stories. I was very disappointed to hear it was more like Dubai, just sort of a shopping mall of a place. Well, I don't know if Muscat's quite like Dubai. I mean, Dubai definitely has a kind of a, a, a brashness to it that, that Muscat doesn't. Muscat's very, I mean, it's beautiful and it's kind of much more understated. Um, and, I, I, you know, and I did like it. And I feel I do need to go back to Oman really to do it justice because I got trapped there because my bike was broken um, from, from, from the flight. And so I ended up being stuck in Muscat um, and not really being able to, to explore much of Oman because um, I was in a bit of a race against time to get into Iran before my kind of visa went, window expired. Um, but I did feel with, with Muscat, the more I was there, the more I did think it had this sort of slight sense of soulless apathy about it. Like everything is this kind of pearly white color um there you know um, everything is almost a little bit too pristine a little bit too tranquil a little bit too good to be true um and uh, you know it is uh, an, a, another dictatorship more of a kind of benevolent dictatorship than, 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 than some um but uh, i kind of felt that I, I felt really enervated, I think, be, being in, in, in Oman. I didn't feel it quite had the kind of the, the, the buzz, the, the, the energy that other places um, had. And it was almost like people had kind of been kind of feeding off the kind of lotus flowers of myth. You know, there was kind of a very kind of comfortable, kind of sedate feeling there. Um, you know, people were, you know, were fairly kind of well off and fairly happy with their lot and um you know and, and because they had security and they had comfort they weren't necessarily going to be too kind of kind of politically driven or active or you know but this was this was I, I feel like you know I need to go back there because I I this was only my impressions from being there a fairly short amount of, of time um and uh and I'm sure there's other people who have very different experiences of of Oman I didn't get down to to, to the western side as well um which I think is probably far more interesting in many ways, kind of culturally, certainly. But the Gulf as a whole, I'm not, I found the least interesting uh, and exciting part. Well, you had a really interesting insight about Dubai. You were talking to somebody there or somebody wanted you to go there with them and you looked a bit disappointed and he's, oh, you don't like Dubai because of the materialism. But he said, Europeans will never understand the appeal of Dubai to Arabs. We had nothing for years. So to, to us, Dubai is a sign of progress. It's only when you have access to material pleasures that they begin to lose their shame. So that really made me look at the place in a new way. 
Yeah, me, me too, actually, when I had that conversation, as I think it's easy to be snide about places like like Dubai, um, you know, and it certainly does make me kind of feel a little bit nauseous <laughs> when I think about a place like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's easy to say that, yeah, you know, when, when, when you've had the privilege of material comfort, you know, you can look at places like that and, and then you can disdain them. Um, but if you've never had that, um, and then basically they, they've really created something from nothing. Um, it's almost like a sort of a, a weird kind of alchemy in, in Dubai. And it's fairly impressive in some ways. I mean, they've just conjured this, this sort of um, material paradise from, from sand, from, from, from the desert. And so I think, you know, you've got to be somewhat in, impressed by that in some way. And, and, and not in, without a huge amount of oil money as, as well. That's not where they get their money from in, in Dubai. Uh, so they kind of created this whole kind of, you know, financial industry there and tourist industry there. And they've provided something that that's, yeah, a lot of the people have never dreamt they could ever have. Um, and so, yeah, I think we do have to be a little bit careful sometimes with the way that we, we judge these places. It's astonishing when you see photos of 50, 60 years ago, just patches of sand and some fishing boats. And yes, look at it now. It's really incredible. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, not necessarily the place I want to hang out. Probably, I much prefer to <laughs> yes, Sudan. Exactly. But... I still don't want to go there. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so I feel like I just yeah. But other people they might do. That's, that's I can understand the appeal after after reading about that conversation. Yeah, that's that really makes sense. For me, the I think Iran was the most interesting country on your journey because it's so misunderstood. Like you, you wrote um, that it was a tale of two countries starkly divided between the conservative insular ruling clerics who viewed the outside world with scorn and the more progressive outward looking populace who embrace it with warmth. The differences in Tehran sounded incredible. Like you described um, parties like something out of the great Gatsby, these rich elites, you know, booze and drugs and materialism and sex hidden away in this sort of cloistered world of its own side by side with mosques and, and mullahs and, you know, hardline clerics. Tell, tell us about that. I mean, that must have been quite a shock. Uh, it, it was quite a shock. Um, it was quite exciting <laughs> entering to the Tehran, you know, and that, that party scene. Um, but it was certainly, yeah, I mean, the, the, the divides in Iran are very stark. Um, and what, what, what's interesting about the country is really, I think, like how, how little the two kind of extremes interact with each other and understand each other. I remember I was hanging out with uh, this group in Tehran and we went camping up in, in the mountains um, and we passed kind of a, a, a group or a, a family uh, who was sort of sitting under some, some trees and the, and the women were all kind of, you know, covered you know, in their hijab and uh, and they were kind of dancing with with, with, with their children uh, and the and the, the women I were with who were much more progressive much more westernized we were all kind of we'd taken off our you know our outer clothing and we were just kind of wearing kind of shorts and t-shirts we were up in the mountains and there wasn't really you know there was hardly anyone around and they looked over and they and they were like um oh uh, I don't understand you know they wear these hijabs and yet then they jump around kind of wiggling their hips kind of provocatively like I don't understand why they do that I really wish I could go and ask them and I was like well why don't you go and ask? like why, why don't you just go and talk to them they're like oh no we never talk we never talk to people like that um, and I did get this sense that they're just there weren't these kind of conversations going across the divide um, and I stayed in you know a lot of houses in in southern Iran which is perhaps more conservative more traditional um and there was these kind of beautiful tardis like houses i go inside what looked like a kind of very modest mud 
hut um, and you go into these um, beautiful, almost mosque-like rooms where there was no furniture at all um, and just beautiful Persian carpets and, and cushions uh, around the edge and they'd roll out their, their mattresses to sleep at night and then roll them up again in, in the morning. So there was this, um, you know, kind of very kind of pristine minimalism about these places. Um, and I would tell people about that sometimes in some of the bigger cities that I went to. Um, and they didn't believe me that there was no furniture. <laughs> well, of course, everyone in Iran has furniture. Everyone has sofas and beds. And I was like, well, a lot of these places that I was staying in. Uh, and I, when I, then I, started, I started thinking about the UK and I was like, goodness, I mean, there's probably lots of different kind of communities that I don't understand in the UK that I, I've never been to, that I've never been inside their homes, never talked to these people. And actually, we are kind of very much in these bubbles. I think it's um, particularly extreme somewhere like Iran. Um, but I think it's probably true of, of, of a lot of our own um, our own cultures as, as well. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, Iran, it was... Uh, really astonishing I think this this kind of disconnect um between the two the two sides um but also just just a, a last point on that um it wasn't so much that it was it, I mean it was that's a very simplistic way of, of looking at it of course it's not just these two kind of like polar ends kind of in competing against each other um you know even the more kind of traditional people that I met the more religious people didn't necessarily support the the regime as well there was a whole kind of spectrum of different opinions about uh, about the the regime there and actually like being kind of religious or conservative didn't necessarily mean that you were pro the um uh, Khamenei. How prevalent is Zoroastrianism still today? Um it's pretty I think I think it runs very deep in the Iranian culture I mean even if people aren't sort of actively practicing it I think the people who are actively practicing it is fairly low um, but it's you know it's very much part of the culture in in Iran um, and I think in a sense they are kind of more kind of Zoroastrian than they are a Muslim in in, in, in many ways and certainly you know like um, the the Iranian New Year kind of the, the the fire festival there is kind of based on kind of um, Zoroastrian um, beliefs and it, um, and you know when with the clerics are constantly trying to to shut it down all the time and there's there's always this massive outcry from for the population because you know it really is so important to people to to embrace that side of them uh, and uh, and I think that also goes back to kind of Persian identity in a sense in Iran. In, a, in much of the Middle East, Islam is the core of their identity. It's the center of their identity. In Iran, it's not. They have this millennia of, of, of history and these kind of three hulking empires that they've had over the years that have created this really kind of strong, secure sense of self in Iran. And Islam is really just, a, just an added layer over the top of that. Um, you know, the Arabs came in in the seventh century and they took over Iran and they um, imposed Islam on, on Iran, but they never really conquered it like they did in other places in the Arab world. Like actually Persia in a sense conquered the Arabs because then the Arab empire became much more Persianized after, afterwards. Um, and so they, they, they became Islamic, but they never became like Arabized. Um, and so I kind of got, got this sense in Iran, like there was this whole kind of iceberg of cultural identity um, that went, you know, way beyond um, Islam and the Khamenei regime um, and anything in, in, in recent history, really. That's one of the things I came away with a desire to read more into um, uh, Iranian history and Persian history and some of the some of their classic works of literature as well. I'm not very deeply read in that area. 
that's really made me curious to read more. But that and the um, food, I found a, an Iranian restaurant in my neighborhood after after reading this. So we've been, we've been going back there quite often. Uh, yeah, Iranian food is uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's absolutely like like wonderful. And I um, I mean, I'm still weighing up whether the kebabs are better in Iran or Turkey. Um, and, uh, and I mean, I just at some point I was eating multiple kebabs a day. I mean, there's much more to Iranian food than just kebabs, but I'm a, I'm a weird kebab obsessive. And so like kubada kebabs, um, you know, was always my kind of go-to meal of choice when I was there. Um, but yeah, I really gorged on, on, on the food. And the portions are are just kind of out of it, out of this world. Um, they would um and they keep offering it, keep offering it. And actually, what I didn't know when I entered Iran, and I didn't know actually until just before I left, is that there is um something called tarof, which is this kind of um form of etiquette where you know someone offers you something and you're meant to kind of turn it down kind of say you know at least three times and until you finally accept it uh and uh, and i didn't know about that which is probably fortunate because in a sense I, I just accepted pretty much every invitation that came my way so who knows how many of them were actually authentic um, you know these people were probably like horrified that they actually had to follow through um, but there's a sort of tar off with with eating as well you know they kind of offer it to you but they would offer it to me and I'd feel like it was impolite to refuse so I just kind of you know, accepted kind of mountains of you know kind of rice and, and meat and like all these wonderful things but uh it did mean that I ended the trip not quite as sort of dangerously thin as I was hoping um so I thought with all this cycling they surely are like I'd be this kind of tiny waif of a, of a person at the end but unfortunately I didn't actually I didn't actually lose very much weight at all it's funny how some of these cultural differences, your obliviousness can really work in your favor. Like Japan's a bit like that too. That nobody will say no directly to mm, you. Yes. But foreigners don't understand this, right? So can you, can you do this for me? Well, it's difficult. That's supposed to mean like, no, it's impossible. <laughs> yes. well, it's difficult, but you can do it, right? <laughs> I just befuddled, don't know how to answer this. Tell me about the, um, the dangers faced by dissidents in the Middle East. It seemed quite different than what you've encountered with um, sort of the post-Arab spring protesters in in Egypt or Sudan. The situation in in Iran seemed a lot more uh, repressive for these people. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was definitely dangerous in in Egypt and Sudan as as well, and in Turkey too. Um, You know, I did get a sense, you know, that there there was a, a a kind of rising sense of kind of repression in these places. And that was actually the biggest I would say, um, for me, the biggest fear on the, on the, on the trip and the biggest source of concern was actually that yeah, the, the, the political repression. Um, it wasn't wasn't anything to do with kind of the the, the people or um, kind of social side of these countries. It was very much you know I was going through these countries at a time of great political upheaval, um, and there were kind of activists, NGOs um, who were being shut down, who were being harassed, who were being sent out of the country, who were being arrested, who were being abused, um, you know, and, and I, I I saw this everywhere. You know, I saw that, I mean, in, in Egypt, uh, there was a palpable sense of, of, of fear. Um, and there, there was one amazing NGO that was run by female doctors. It was an anti-torture NGO. And I went to actually a, a, a press conference that they held just after they'd been shut down by the al-Sisi regime, because they'd basically been accusing his regime of, of, of torture directly, you know, which you don't do in, 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 in Egypt. And they were there, you know, just saying very openly, saying, you know, the regime is um, responsible for this kind of litany of, of, of abuses. Um, and so I was constantly 
um, really dazzled by the courage, um, the drive of, of these people. Um, and so I did get that sense throughout. But in Iran, I do think it did ratchet up a notch, actually, because because even though people were scared in these other places, they still met me. Um, they knew if they knew I was a journalist, they would still meet me. Um, in Iran, it really wasn't the case. Um, like as soon as they heard that I was a journalist, they they very much did, went running for the for the hills. Um, and actually, I, I met my friend Joe came out to meet me in Azadi Square, which was the end of my my cycle ride. Um, and I and she and sort of she had a friend in Iran, and she sort of organised that we were going to stay there the, the night. And I arrived exhausted after this like awful 150 kilometer ride through the, through the desert like 48 degree heat I mean it was all like awful I kind of collapsed into her arms I was like oh you know thank god you're here like where where are you going to stay and she was like oh you know she told her friend that I was a journalist and he said I'm sorry actually you guys can't stay here it's too it's too dangerous um and we ended up staying with a random family who'd overheard our conversation and probably from Taroff invited us back to stay but obviously we didn't know about Taroff so we <laughs> went back to the house um but yeah in Tehran very few people met me very few people um and actually one of the only people who did meet me was just this incredible human rights lawyer called Nazrin Satuda and um and she has just done phenomenal things throughout her life in representing um, most oppressed minority groups, um, the Baha'i um, religious group in, in Iran, um, uh, children accused of um, drugs, crimes, um, uh, women who were protesting the mandatory hijab. Um, and she'd been in Evin prison uh, on several occasions. And I just, I couldn't get over her courage, like how she just carried on fighting. And very sadly, actually, um, couple of years after after I met her she then was arrested for um representing women who who were protesting against the mandatory hijab and is now and was sentenced to um just I think 33 years in, in prison one hopes that you know that that sentence will um be reduced um on appeal but I just yeah she was this small frail um fairly kind of fragile looking person in, 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 in many ways. Um, and yet, you know, inside she had obviously this incredible strength, this incredible sense of purpose. Yeah. And I just sort of came, came away from meeting her and, and others like her as well, just sort of overwhelmed with this kind of sense of um, disbelief and wonder at what they, what they were doing and what they had achieved. There, there was a sense of things simmering below the surface. Like you, you were speaking to a friend and about this lack of sort of obvious protest or whatever. And he said, don't be deceived. We've seen the damage revolutions can do. Swift change means swift collapse. And we're playing the long game. You know, the revolution comes with the cost is basically what he was saying. This, the turmoil that results maybe is worse than state imposed uh, peace that they had before. And they don't want to replace one with something even worse. Uh, yes, I did. I got this sense in Iran of this incredible sense of political maturity um, in a way that perhaps wasn't the case in places like Sudan and in Egypt, where there was more kind of almost like this, this childish fervor. Um, whereas in Iran, you know, it's a bit like, oh, we've been there. We've done that. Um, we've seen what it can do. You know, they had 1979 revolution, which was meant to be a people's revolution, but was then was captured by the Islamist groups, didn't go as planned. They then had the 2009 green protests, which again, you know, didn't 
get anywhere in the end and they had a big clamp down after that um then they saw the arab spring uh you know and what happened there and these kind of big counter revolutions and the countries breaking out into civil war um so they yeah they, they're not enamored by the idea of revolution um uh but they 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 sort of lavash lavash slowly slowly this idea that they would kind of just go kind of edge their way um towards freedom bit by bit um and uh, and i feel like with the iranians that they'll get there because they are they're educated they're politically aware and they you know they have a legacy of democracy again sort of short lived in that country and uh, again going back to our complicity in the west you know you go back to 1953 and the coup that was um, you know engineered by the west by the cia by mi6 we took out a very kind of popular um, democratically semi democratically elected leader mohammed mossadegh uh, in order to impose our own puppet regime and if we hadn't done that in all likelihood iran would be a democracy today um and it would be progressive and it would be liberal uh, and west western facing and uh, so i kind of feel that we unfortunately set back democracy in 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 iran there by you know perhaps a good 100 years or or, or more um but they will um they're, they're an incredible country and and they will get back there eventually so it's a place i'd really like to visit especially after reading this i wanted to close with something you you quoted in the section on oman you quoted the savage from huxley's brave new world where he says um i don't want comfort i want god i want poetry i want real danger i want freedom i want goodness i want sin we're all savages at heart you write but sometimes weighed down by finery we forget is that the appeal of travel do you think this escape from the kind of overly regulated overprotected lives of security and freedom kind of a reminder that of the life we've given up yeah i think it is actually yeah it's interesting yeah you, you see it in that way i i i'm not sure i've thought about travel particularly in relation to that quote but i think you're absolutely right um you do you get rid of the trappings of of everyday life the sort of luxuries of everyday life um and you, instead you have this kind of overwhelming sense of kind of of freedom of interaction with people of perhaps what really matters you know human connection um you know only connect you know Ian Forster said um and uh, and I kind of feel that 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 is what travel is about you know and 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 going back to why on a bicycle you know you're you're traveling very sparsely um you're traveling you know only with the necessities you know and i i yeah and i love that about travel you really you have this sense of vulnerability about you and i think in a sense that's why people are attracted to you because you know you kind of see the vulnerabilities in in each other um and you embrace that you're drawn together because of that and so um yes i think we could all do with um stepping outside our comfort zones more more often i really do think you know that is kind of where a lot of the true joy and excitement of 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 life is is lurking great note to end on thank you very much rebecca so the book is uh, the slow road to tehran and uh, highly recommend it it's a really enjoyable read and uh, thank you very much for your time thank you very much for having me uh, it's it's been a, a real pleasure thanks for listening to this episode of personal landscapes if you like the podcast please give it a rating on itunes and subscribe through your favorite app You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on books about place at ryanbernard.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated. Thank you.